This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this extended episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the socially and politically existential threat of our time, the fight against encroaching authoritarianism in the U.S. and around the world. Clips today come from the Tom Hartman Program, Democracy Now!, and Analysis. A brilliant piece by Nicholas Kristof in today's New York Times. I strongly recommend you check this out. Actually, it was yesterday's Times. It's January 10th. It's titled Trump's Threat to Democracy. It's on the front page of the digital New York Times right now. And he points out uh, a couple of political scientists. This is uh, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, both professors at Harvard. Uh, they, They just published a new book titled How Democracies Die. And in that book, they said that there are four warning signs when you're looking at a politician to indicate that that politician may become a Mussolini or a Hitler, that he may become a or she may become an authoritarian uh, destroyer of democracy. And those five, four criteria. Now, actually, before I tell you these criteria, let me give you the, the kind of backstory. He's a public, a, a, a Stephen, the, the, the two professors, Harvard professors who wrote this book, write, a politician who meets even one of these criteria is cause for concern. With the exception of Richard Nixon, no major party presidential candidate, not even presidents, candidates, no major party presidential candidate met even one of these four criteria over the last century. So from 1900 till today, No presidential candidate, with the exception of Richard Nixon, met even one of these criteria, and Nixon only met one of the four. Here's the criteria. Number one, the leader shows only a weak commitment to democratic rules. Well, that's Donald Trump, right? Flaunting the rules, see what you can get away with, break the law. Number two, he or she denies the legitimacy of opponents. Trump said Obama wasn't even born in the United States. He calls Hillary Clinton a criminal, crooked Hillary, all this stuff. Number three, he or she, rather than respecting the opponents, which is something even Nixon did. Number three, he or she tolerates violence. Trump saying to people, hey, you know, rough them up a little bit and I'll I'll, uh, pay your legal fees. Or saying to a convention of police officers, hey, stop putting your hands on people's heads when you put them in the car. Bang them around a little. Or words to that effect. And number four, he or she shows some willingness to curb civil liberties or the media. Did you catch Trump's speech yesterday about how he wants to, quote, reform our nation's libel laws so that he can sue Michael Wolff, who wrote this book? I mean, that's what it's all about, right? These four criteria, the authors of this book say, again, with the exception of Richard Nixon, no major party candidate met even one. Nixon met only one. Unfortunately... Donald Trump meets them all. And, he, and he, they write in this book, How Democracies Die, that people who meet all four of these criteria are now ruling in Russia, the Philippines, Turkey, Venezuela, Ecuador, Hungary, Nicaragua, Sri Lanka, Ukraine, Poland, and Peru. And I would add Myanmar to that list. And here we are. Is this the road we're going down? We turn now to Brazil, where far-right former army captain Jair Bolsonaro was sworn in as president of the world's fourth largest democracy on New Year's Day. 
I state before everyone today the day when people were liberated from socialism. This is our flag, and it will never again be red. Bolsonaro was sworn in as Brazil's 42nd president, marking the most radical political shift in the country since military rule ended more than 30 years ago. Many fear Brazil's young democracy is now at risk. Bolsonaro has announced Brazil will withdraw from hosting this year's United Nations Climate Change Conference. This comes as environmentalists fear he will speed catastrophic climate change by opening up vast swaths of the Amazon to agribusiness giants. Brazil's new foreign minister, Ernesto Araujo, has described climate change as a plot by cultural Marxists aiming to help China. So far, Bolsonaro has named five former military officials to serve in his cabinet. For years, Bolsonaro has praised Brazil's former military dictatorship, which ended 33 years ago. He's also spoken in favor of torture and threatened to destroy, imprison or banish his political opponents. Human rights groups are also alarmed over Bolsonaro's past comments about women and the LGBT community. He once told a female lawmaker she was too ugly to rape. He also said he would rather hear his son died in a car crash than learn that his son is gay. But Bolsonaro has been warmly received by the Trump administration. National Security Advisor John Bolton described Bolsonaro as a like-minded partner. Bolton and Bolsonaro met in Rio in November, where they reportedly talked about trade, Israel and Cuba. During the meeting, Bolton invited Bolsonaro to come to Washington. On the economic front, Jair Bolsonaro has tapped an economist who was taught at the University of Chicago to oversee his economic plan, which includes slashing pensions and the mass privatization of many state-run companies. The economist Paulo Guedes, taught at the University of Chile during the reign of General Augusto Pinochet, uh, Bolsonaro recently picked Sergio Moro to serve as justice minister. Moro is the judge who convicted the former Brazilian president, Luis Inácio. Lula da Silva in a controversial corruption case that prevented Lula from running for president in last year's election. This helped pave the way for Bolsonaro's victory. Lula remains in prison, serving a 12-year sentence. Well, Democracy Now! recently spoke with Fernando Hadaja, who ran against Bolsonaro with the Workers' Party once Lula was barred from running. Bolsonaro beat him 55 to 45 percent. Hadaja is Brazil's former minister of education, the former mayor of Sao Paulo, one of the largest cities in the world. I began by asking Fernando Haddadja about the comparisons between Bolsonaro and Donald Trump. Bolsonaro is a tropical Trump. They have a very common agenda, a very regressive agenda when it comes to civil rights social rights and environmental rights. But from the economic standpoint, there is a major difference between the two of them. Bolsonaro is adopting a regressive policy as regards rights, but a neoliberal policy when it comes to economic policy. Paulo Guedes, who you mentioned, who is going to be his minister of the economy, was trained at the University of Chicago. And he maintains the belief, his belief in that sort of thinking, which was actually defeated by history of total liberalization. 
You talked about the the uh, massive state assets, particularly oil, companies that are managed by the state today. Well, next year, there's likely to be a savage privatization of those assets and uh, an unbound struggle against workers' rights and social rights in Brazil. And gutting the public budget that protects the poorest of the poor and uh, workers in relation to their employers. So from an economic standpoint, there is a difference that should be noted. Brazil is once again adopting a neoliberal agenda, a very strong neoliberal agenda, beyond what happened in the 1990s. And can you talk about um, the cabinet that Bolsonaro is putting together now, five former military officials serving uh, in his cabinet, praising the former military dictatorship? It's really unprecedented, certainly in Brazil. It's very difficult to attain modern democracy with the appointment of so many military people, as is going to happen in the future administration of Bolsonaro. Therefore, it is an alliance that involves externally alignment with Trump policies, highly regressive. As I've indicated, from the economic standpoint, radicalized version of neoliberalism, but I would also draw attention to Bolsonaro's appreciation of a fundamentalist agenda from the standpoint of customs. He is very close to neo-Pentecostalism, which in Brazil recently has been adopting positions hostile towards political minorities in Brazil, but even against a majority, such as blacks and women. There are hostile messages in his discourse. And it would be very difficult for this to happen without strong military support. To be consistent with his discourse of lifting up the military dictatorship in Brazil, the uh, dictatorship that extended from 1964 to 1985. Bolsonaro, his whole life, has been uplifting not only the dictatorship itself, but also the methods that the dictatorship used to stay in power, including torture. When you first came into our studio today and I asked you what you're doing here in the United States, uh, you said, well, Trump's been in power for two years. You guys are preparing <laughs> for Bolsonaro. Talk about that, what that means to you. Well, look, I consider the Trump administration to be serious backsliding in relation to what I believe is the objective of politics. The objective of politics is always to build scenarios in which persons' horizons can be expanded ever more. Any political action that is aimed at restricting individuals' horizons is, as I see it, a regressive action in relation to the political values that I embrace. Bolsonaro, in that regard, is an ally of Trump. He is a person who is constantly announcing restrictions on rights, and I would include environmental rights in that. As I see it, the right to a healthy environment is a human right, because disrespecting the future of, uh, the, of future generations well, safeguarding 
the ability of future generations to live in a healthy planet is part of the expansion of horizons in Western democracies for ourselves and for future generations. So I would like to understand what's happening in the United States. As a university professor, I foresaw Trump's victory because of the movements I was observing around the world. I am a professor of political science, but I believe that the United States has become a laboratory for us, for us to organize an opposition, which is not opposition to the country, but rather in favor of humanism, in favor of the human species, in favor of expanding the space for freedom and for the emancipation of each and every one of us. I don't know about you, but recently, things don't seem altogether normal. Political parties, once considered fringe, are now mainstream. Attitudes perceived as extreme are now everywhere. Ideas that were common sense are under question. Take Jeremy Corbyn. He disagreed with his own party's idea of normality so often that he was one of its most frequent rebels. But now, he's its leader. In Europe, right-wing parties, considered fringe just a couple of years ago, are now major forces in parliaments. Or, in the case of Italy, ruling together with an anarchic left-wing movement I had always considered their mortal enemy. And that's not even mentioning Donald Trump with his conspiracy theories, his appeals to nationalist attitudes once thought of as beyond the pale. How was it that the old idea of normal, of common sense, was upended? Who was trying to redefine the new normal? And how? And what are the consequences? I'm Peter Pomerantsev, a senior fellow at the London School of Economics and an author specialising in influence campaigns. And this is The War for Normal. I think there are ways in which uh, the world seems to have speeded up. Kate Crean is an anthropologist at the City University of New York. And I think that is partially rooted in some very real economic changes. Things like the collapse of manufacturing in many places, the increasing globalization of our economy, technological changes, so that a common sense, a sort of sense of what's normal, what's ordinary that exists at one moment is overturned and transformed very, very rapidly. Korean speciality is Antonio Gramsci, a philosopher and one of the founders of the Italian Communist Party in the 1920s. Yet his ideas about redefining normal and common sense are now popular across the political spectrum. Antonio Gramsci uh, was born in the late 19th century. In 1926, he was arrested by Mussolini. And while he is in prison, he writes what have become known as the prison notebooks. 
And in those prison notebooks, he Basically, what he's doing in a way is he's reflecting on why he's sitting in prison and Mussolini is in power. One of Gramsci's insights was that real political power does not lie merely in controlling economics or institutions, but in the culture and ideas that creates what he called common sense. And if you can make your political ideas normal amongst large groups of people, then that makes them hard to defeat. Policies can be argued with, but common sense is much trickier. Common sense is something that you don't need to prove that this is the normal state of affairs. This is what we don't have to question. This is what happens normally. And that's its power. We are living in a world where there is fierce contest over common sense, over what our normal is. Because although the temptation is to think of common sense as something stable, a shared set of ideas that anchor how we view the world, that is not Gramsci's understanding of it. It's not something that's fixed. It's this sort of seething cauldron. I wanted to taste the contents of this cauldron for myself. So I started with the new left, where Gramsci's ideas have long been well known. Jeremy Gilbert is a professor of cultural and political theory at the University of East London. He was a member of the founding National Committee of Momentum, the left-wing organisation created to promote radical social and economic change after Jeremy Corbyn's successful leadership bid. I asked him for an example of common sense. The example I always give of this, which I, I love, is this was sort of 20 years ago when I was first teaching a kind of first-year media studies seminar. A student said to me, well, people are naturally competitive, aren't they? And I said, are they? Uh, and he said, yeah, well, that's what cavemen were like, isn't it? And they said, I said, is it? And he said, yeah, I've seen it on the telly. And I said to him, well, it's not what cavemen were like, because you, know, you can't catch a mammoth on your own. The idea that humans are naturally competitive rather than cooperative may seem, well, common sense for some. But for Gilbert, this idea was a reflection of the stated aims of the ruling political class. The underlying truth of human nature is this kind of entrepreneurial, competitive way of being in the world, which, you know, which indeed you know, people like Thatcher and Blair also kind of thought and quite explicitly stated was whether it was natural or not how they wanted British people to be, because they thought unless British people became like that, then they wouldn't be able to compete in the global marketplace. And, reckons Gilbert, this idea became so normalised by culture that the student from the seminar didn't even know why he thought it. He didn't even know where he'd got that idea from. He got it from kind of, you know, sort of half-watched, half-understood, you know, representations. But that's how common sense kind of gets assembled and gets accumulated. Clearly, it's not just how we think about early humankind that is at stake here. For Gilbert, competitiveness has become embedded in our society. And a central part of the New Left's project is to show how these ideas have shaped our hospitals, our universities and our schools. The belief that the education system is this sort of uh, carefully managed but also fundamentally fair field of competition in which people have to fundamentally think of themselves as 
consumers who are purchasing a service and as competitors who are competing with others to get the best possible outcome for themselves is all reinforced by these systems of lead tables, of parental choice. Parents are actively encouraged by this kind of system to believe something which again is not sociologically verified but which the vast majority of, sort of middle class parents in Britain really believe which is the school your child goes to will have a massively determining effect on their life outcomes which again is not true I mean it's just statistically it's not true this will sh- this would shock Radio 4 listeners because what really determines whether you're likely to get to university or not is whether your parents did not the school they're going to. For Chantal Mouffe a political theorist at the University of Westminster whose writing has influenced new left-wing movements like Le France Insoumise and Podemos in Spain, the old normal spread by Thatcher from the right and Blair from the left gave the illusion that there was no alternative, an illusion that disappeared after the economic crisis of 2008. What is uh, uh, evident is that since 2008, we are in a situation in which nobody believes anymore that there is no alternative. And that creates political opportunities. For Mouffe, an adherence to her vision of left populism, in a period of flux, political identities can be reimagined, different movements united around a new idea of the people and those who stand against the people, the many and the few, the us and the them. Identities are the result of political construction. And that, of course, the whole question is how you construct the S and the them. And it can go to a more uh, authoritarian regime if, if it's, you know, capitalized by the right, or it can go also towards a more democratic thing. Gramsci has a famous phrase. The crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. It feels like we are in that crisis. Because, of course, it's not just the new left who are trying to give birth to a new common sense. It is on the right where the war for normal is perhaps being waged with most intensity. Or at least what we used to think of as the right. Jeff Gieser is a Washington, D.C.-based entrepreneur. He was part of the grassroots media effort that supported Trump during the American presidential campaign. He's observed the ongoing effort to reshape what were the common political definitions. Before, we would talk about things as left-right or conservative versus liberal, and now we've shifted the conversation to maybe globalist versus nationalist. You know, I saw this frame start to happen in pro-Trump circles about three years ago. Globalists. You know what a globalist is, right? You know what a globalist is. A globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. And you know what? We can't have that. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. At one of his rallies, I believe it was in Houston, he said, I am a nationalist. He appropriated a word explicitly that many people associated with many negative connotations, and he appropriated that and kind of claimed it on his own. So it reminds me of like the word queer used to be a pejorative that people in the gay community took ownership with and they claimed it, right? 
A part of Trump's electoral appeal is that he says the unsayable. He transgresses the common sense on an almost daily basis, whether by the claims he makes or the language he uses. And for anthropologist Kate Crean, it means Donald Trump continually creates his own political normal, one that prizes gut instinct over anything else. To understand Donald Trump, we need to see him as creating this new kind of common sense. One of the defining characteristics of common sense is that you don't need evidence to prove it. Once you start needing evidence, then it's no longer common sense. Trump is privileging this kind of common sense validity. And in a way, almost, if you need evidence, then it's not true. <laughs> it's, I mean, you only should trust your gut. I mean, that is the untruth. Otherwise, it's all these pointy-headed intellectuals who just mislead you. And yes, they've got all these facts and they've got all this evidence, but it's just all complete sophistry and you don't have to pay any attention to it. He certainly is the, the master of common sense in the Gramscian sense. Trump uses his position of political power to reinvent normal almost at whim. In a politics that can prioritise gut feeling over truth, is it any wonder that ideas grounded in rational economic ideas like left and right begin to slip their moorings? The contest over the concepts we operate in has always been with us. As the old idea of normal, of common sense disintegrates, maybe for perfectly legitimate reasons, many other movements step into the flux, reshaping, moulding how we see the world and how we define ourselves. When that old normal is swept away, malign powers can step in. Morbid symptoms. So what will happen in a world where everyone is constantly at war, not just for the arguments, but for the very language and the sense of identity through which we make sense of things? For Jeremy Gilbert, a new normal might emerge. Parties could redefine themselves in line with new concepts, and the internet might offer a chance to unite rather than cause further fragmentation. What you're describing is only one half of the story about the world of the internet and social media. I think there is still the opportunity. I think there is the capacity uh, to construct a new normal. And platforms don't only operate through giving people you know, all their own tiny little bit of the world. They also operate through aggregating like huge amounts of data, huge numbers of people, sort of bringing people together. And that may well be reflected in the rapid rise of big grassroots political parties. At the end of the 80s, and for sort of almost 30 years, lots of political scientists and commentators thought, well, the political party as an institutional form is just dead. So then actually parties we've seen, it's not just in Britain, but uh, parties are coming back. You know, the um, Mélenchon's party in France has, has got more members than the Labour Party now in Britain, and it's, you know, it's only existed for 18 months or so. In the States, you know, Democratic Socialists of America, you know, on the back of the Bernie campaign, has, has been recruiting tens of thousands of members. We are just at the very outset of feeling the pinch of the economic hardships that are about to hit us as a result of, you know, the systemic shifts of wealth from West to East. Yet here we are already politically 
Havlicek from ISD thinks that we are just at the start of the polarization driven by extremist groups normalizing themselves. As these social and economic problems grow, what do you think happens if we are being increasingly influenced and led by people who ultimately lead and can only lead by propagating the exclusion, the subjugation of the scapegoat. It is simply a natural consequence of that project. And so, you know, as the resource becomes more limited and more scarce, we are going to see a very, very dangerous environment ensue. Perhaps in all this tumult, we could do with a moment where we also check what it is, if anything at all, we can still agree on as normal. There's actually a minimal amount of things that we need to agree on. Then actually, well, let's step back and build on those basic assumptions of civil rights, basic liberties, basic tolerance of diversity, freedom of opinion, and so on. Say, well, actually, we can have right-left political persuasions on the assumption of these fundamentals and build, you know, rebuild what we had before on those foundations. Today's episode was sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have only had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or spending the time and money on a salon, but now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than 25 bucks. Self-image is an important thing, so it is no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has actually improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray covering, game-changing color that you can do at home and look as if you've just come from the salon. Women love the results, gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair, and what makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and Best of the Left listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's code LEFT at madison-reed.com. Can you talk about this in the context of fascism and the pillar that you name, majority populations claiming victimhood? Yes, this is just probably the dominant theme uh, in countries that fall prey to fascist politics. Uh, Hitler just talked endlessly about the victimization of Germany in World War I. I think we find now the purest form of this in the men's rights movement, the backlash to feminism. Uh, It's always the case in fascist ideology that the dominant group is victim of victims of liberalism, uh, feminism, uh, cultural Marxism, movements for equality, because the idea in fascism is hierarchy. And so the idea is one group always has to rule. So any group that attempts to gain equality is represented as really trying to take over. I want to go to another clip of President Trump, and this is about don't believe what you see. Now, your previous book is about propaganda. So let's go once again to that clip. Just remember, what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. So we have to make our country 
truly great again. Remember, make America great again. And then in two and a half years, it's called keep America great. So I want to go address two issues in this. One is don't believe what you hear and see. And the other one is goes to your first pillar in your 10 pillars of fascism, uh, where you talk about um, the mythic past, make America great again, and how that compares to other authoritarian leaders. So everything in fascism is about smashing the truth and replacing it with loyalty and power. So uh, the mythic past, the make is about you connect people. The fascist in in times of when fascists, uh, fascist politicians seek to connect people's anxiety with a sense of loss. So they create this glorious past, and they say the reason that you feel anxious, the reason you're angry and fearful, is you lost. You lost that past when you were respected just for being a man, just for being white, just for being Hindu, in, uh, or, or whatever the identity is. And so it creates this sense of incredible yearning loss. And of course it's a lie, because there never was such a great mythic past. Um, so you get people used to this politics of fiction, this politics of myth, and then you, they get addicted to you. They get addicted to you as a person who cha channels that. And you also want to show your power. That's a second feature of only believe me. You want to show that you're so powerful and macho that you're more powerful than reality itself. Well, I want to ask you about um, another pillar of, of fascist politics that you've uh, identified in the book, and that's anti-intellectualism. Now, arguably, and in the context of Trump, arguably anti-intellectualism has been present throughout uh, much of American history. Why do you think that the anti-intellectualism that exists today is so different from that which preceded it? Well, one of the things, one of the ways in which my book differs from the other Crisis of Democracy books is I emphasize the continuity of today with the past. Uh, I don't think we should be talking about what's happening as some deviation or break from the past. I think we should talk about it as, uh, as a gut check moment to face our own proclivities. Uh, we've always had these anti-intellectual sentiments. I'm not saying that that anti-elitism is always unhealthy. It's often quite healthy. Uh, but in moments but when... anti-elitism and anti-intellectualism aren't the same thing. Are, are not the same thing. Anti-intellectualism is an attack on truth, an attack on expertise, an attack on education. When Trump says, you know, uh, the least, you know, the, 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 the non-educated, those are my base. Uh, that echoes Mein Kampf when Hitler says propaganda should be directed to the le least educated men. Hitler mocks people who, uh, who he says, look at these demagogues. Uh, they're, they're criticized for not making sense. But and, actually, of course, Hillary Clinton handed this to him in a basket by talking about the basket of deplorables. Yes. The one oh, one mistake she make, made, which was endlessly thrown in her face, in contrast to the infinite number of horrific comments Mr. Trump made on the, on the trail. When you're a liberal Democrat, uh, you cannot ever make a single mistake. Well, I want to turn to, I mean, you mentioned earlier uh, that uh, fascist uh, leaders produce fears about uh, certain kinds of equalizing ideologies, whether it's feminism or communism, and of course, also socialism. So I want to turn to comments that Trump has made, recent warnings he's issued on the dangers of socialism. This is Trump addressing the UN General Assembly last month. Virtually everywhere, socialism or communism has been tried. 
It has produced suffering, corruption, and decay. Socialism's thirst for power leads to expansion, incursion, and oppression. All nations of the world should resist socialism and the misery that it brings to everyone. On Wednesday, Trump wrote an op-ed in USA Today asking Americans to vote for Republicans in the midterm elections, writing, quote, the new Democrats are radical socialists who want to model America's economy after Venezuela. And if Democrats win control of Congress this November, we'll come dangerously closer to socialism in America, Trump wrote. So, uh, Jason, could you talk about that, the specter of socialism? So that's a classic move. Uh, by the way, I don't want to say that any any one of these moves is sort of familiar from right-wing politics, but when they all come together, that's mm. when you really have to be concerned. This move of painting the center-left as dangerous social, as socialists and communists is extremely familiar. Uh, Goebbels himself said, uh, the, the ordinary burger, the ordinary citizen will not vote for us unless they're terrified that the communists, that the Bolsheviks are coming for their property. Only if we can terrify them into thinking that the Bolsheviks, that the, that communism is nigh, uh, that it's right around the corner and their property is going to be seized, only then will they run into our arms as their protect, as our, as their protectors. So that's just this kind of politics. People only will, uh, will look at what's happening in Brazil, for instance. People will only embrace the far right extremists if they think they need to be radically protected from 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 left wing extremists. So that's the goal to paint the center left. That's what the Nazis did. They painted the ordinary social Democrats as communists. Um, we had Michael Morin recently talking about Fahrenheit 11.9, his new film, and he does a lot of comparisons between Hitler and Trump. But one of the things he says is he's actually not so interested in Trump. Right. He's interested in the people's response to Trump. Right. He said he's interested in the good Germans right. because Hitler couldn't have risen to power without the good Germans. What does that mean? And, you know, as we talk about all of this, how do you see the interruption taking place in the societies you've studied? How is fascism most successfully challenged? Fascism has to be challenged by uh, by bringing back a culture of democracy. Democracy is a culture. It's a, demo it's a set of norms for equal respect, uh, for respect for the truth. Uh, and so we have to, uh, we have to somehow tamp down fear, uh, fear and panic, xenophobia. These are things that, uh, when people feel threatened and anxious and atomized, they, uh, they turn to powerful leaders to protect them. We need to bring back, we need to look at the targets of fascism. So people forget Martin Niemöller's, in Martin Niemöller's poem, one of the lines is, then they came for the trade unionists, uh, labor unions. Why is it that the upper Midwest went, uh, went red? Well, they eliminated the trade unions. Why, racism spikes when you when you eliminate trade unions. Uh, fascist movements always attack trade unions. These are democratic organizations. We need to to get people back into democratic participation. When you Rent tells us, when you atomize people, when you remove them from organizations, they become susceptible to the idea that the only organization they're a member of is a race. 
Well, you spoke last night at uh, the New School here in New York City in conversation with Yale historian Timothy Snyder and Columbia journalism professor and New Yorker writer Jelani Cobb. Now, Jelani Cobb emphasized that one of the principal reasons for the rise of Trump or fascist politics more generally has to do with, in the U.S. in particular, defunding public education. And he thought one of the ways that one can fight uh, a fascist politics is by reinvesting in education. So could you say what you think the role of education is here, especially public education? Public education does two things. First, it gives us, does at least two things. First, it gives us history. It gives us accurate history. Fascism thrives off myth, uh, off grand myth. So think of the myth-making we do about our own country that leaves us so vulnerable to this kinds of politics. Look at how Trump, uh, President Trump uses the Confederacy and Robert E. Lee and myths about the past to talk, to bolster his uh, narrative of a mythic past. So by being... Actual true history gives us everyone's perspective, not just the dominant group perspective. So we need that. Secondly, public education brings all of us together into the same community. So it, it brings, it brings, it, it makes young people realize that they are part of the same community as people of a different skin color, as people of different economic backgrounds, um, and different religions. And so it makes you, you realize that we are together as a community. And so we, it's much more difficult to demonize one another. Well, you're, the subtitle of your book, though, is The Politics of Us and Them. So, in fact, it's the opposite of, of uh, I mean, it's like what you're saying is we need to be brought together. This is the division. Explain who in this formulation the us is. We know them. We know them. Well, uh, in us in the United States, in the case of the United yes. States, because in each country it's going to differ. Uh, in the case of the United States, it's white Christian men. And, uh, and of course, you know, many white Christian women, uh, are going to buy into that because, uh, patriarchy works like that. Uh, but. And in fact, you make the case that patriarchy is essential to the rise of fascist leaders. Pa- patriarchy, fascism is unthinkable without patriarchy. Uh, explain. And, well, as I say to my three-year-old, uh, when I'm explaining political philosophy to him, fascism, in fascism, there's one big daddy. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, fa- in fascism, the patriarchal father in patriarchy leads by strength. There, they protect, he protects his women and children. So what you do in fascism is you make people think the patriarchal family is under threat. Uh, so these values of the strong man protecting their women and children are under threat. And, and of course, you know, uh, that's anti-freedom because, uh, f- uh, anti-freedom and anti-equality because, uh, women should have the freedom to protect themselves and, uh, to, to have, um, friendships with, with anyone of any background. So what you do is you create this, this fear of threat to the patriarchal family, uh, um, uh, to patriarchal values, uh, and then, and then the leader stands to the nation like the patriarchal father stands to his family. I wanted to bring together the issue of immigrants and where immigrants come into the story and patriarchy, because you had Judge Brett Kavanaugh on the federal appeals court in D.C. weighing in in a way he didn't have to forcefully. Hmm. But he wrote the dissent around a case of a young immigrant teenager um, who was in a shelter in Texas who wanted to have an abortion. 
and he tried to prevent her from having an abortion, uh, to the great consternation of so many, um, both the issue of being an immigrant and also being a young woman around the issue of abortion. And I want to take this back even further to Donald Trump, not President Trump, when he first announced for president in those extremely controversial remarks he made in the lead-up to the 2016 election, in his kickoff speech after announcing his bid for the presidential nomination, Trump moved right in, talking about Mexicans as criminals and rapists. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Some, he said, I assume, are good people, but he talked about the Mexican rapists from the beginning. So, right. It is, it's, always, it's always the case that, in this politics, that the out-group, uh, that the out-group are in particular, rapists. They pose a threat to your women. So the values of fascism are patriarchy. Men have to protect their women and children. So you present the outgroup as threats to the women and children. And rape uh, or sexual assault is not something that—it's uh, only something that can be done to your women. Uh, it can't be done to—if if you think about, for instance, what happened in Myanmar with uh, with— uh, with the Rohingya. The Rohingya were presented as rapists. Uh, and then the, the backlash against them was horrific mass rape and genocide. So, uh, so that's acceptable, acceptable against the out group. Um, so rape is this threat to our women and it's perpetrated by their men. Uh, and it's not something you can do to their women. Well, you know, a lot of people thought that uh, the comments that Trump made, especially about, I mean, Mexicans, it's a really uh, uh, extraordinary claim to make about uh, Mexican migrants coming to the U.S. But rather than denouncing them or disowning them once he became president, earlier this year, he returned to those comments, claiming he'd been vindicated by reports of sexual violence against migrant women making the journey from Central America to the U.S. And remember my opening remarks at Trump Tower when I opened. Everybody said, oh, he was so tough. And I used the word rape. And yesterday it came out where this journey coming up, women are raped at levels that nobody's ever seen before. They don't want to mention that. So, Jason, your remarks. Your right. Comments. Again, rape is one of the most horrific crimes any human being can perpetrate. So you link your you link the out group to that crime. Uh, in Austria, the minister, minister of the interior or uh, one of the main government ministers just recently, there was a scandal. He went around to police stations and he said, make sure to make clear uh, any case where a foreigner is raping an Austrian woman. Uh, and we will we will highlight that. So uh, so what you do is you link the outgroup men to rape you present them as these mortal threats, and then you get, you make people feel like they're not protecting their own women.
So this is, this is Hitler, one of Hitler's first forays into politics was raising panic, as I discuss in How Fascism Works, about what he called, what was called the Black Horror on the, on the Rhine. Black Senegalese soldiers occupying Germany in the 1920s and supposedly raping white women. If you think about our own history, what Angela Davis calls the myth of the black rapist, uh, uh, lynching was, was based on this long fake history. Uh, of rape. So it's always w- rape causes it causes horror against the out group uh, and it causes m- uh, men in the in group to feel like they're not they're failing at protecting their women uh, their women and then they need a strong leader to protect them. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. Milton Mayer wrote this book, and I've, I've quoted from the book many times on this program over the years, perhaps not often enough, because, you know, we, we all should have it basically memorized by now. After World War II, Milton Mayer was a reporter in, in Chicago, and he, he hopped on a plane with, you know, got an assignment from his editor, went to Germany for, for a while. I don't think it was a whole year, but he went to Germany for some substantial period of time. And, and, and interviewed in depth 10 people. And that, those 10 interviews are his book. They thought they were free, along with his commentary about it. And all 10 of these people, not, none of these 10 people were like Nazis. They didn't join the Nazi party. They were not, you know, they were just your average, quote, good German. There was a baker, there was a bricklayer, there was a professor, a bunch of them. And he asked them, how did this happen? In fact, when, when Mayer came back to the United States, he, in the introduction to his book, he says, now I see a little better how Nazism overcame Germany, not by attack from without or subversion from within, but with a whoop and a holler. It was what most Germans wanted or under pressure of combined reality and illusion came to want. They wanted it, they got it, they liked it. He said, I came home a little bit afraid for my country. Keep in mind, this is 1954 he wrote this. I came back a little home a little afraid for my country, afraid of what I, it might want and get and like under combined pressure of reality and illusion. I felt and feel that it was not German man that I met, but man. He happened to be in Germany under certain conditions. He might be here under certain conditions. He might under certain conditions be me. 
If I and my countrymen ever succumbed to that concatenation of conditions, no constitution, no laws, no police, and certainly no army would be able to protect us from harm. So what's Milton Mayer talking about? Well, here's what the college professor said to him. These are the verbatim words of a long dead now, good German college professor, lived through World War II, uh, just caught, taught college from, from the beginning to the end. And this guy says, this separation of government from people, this widening of the gap, took place so gradually and so insensibly, each step disguised, perhaps not even intentionally, as a temporary emergency measure or associated with true patriotic allegiance or with real social purposes. And all the crises and reforms, and there were real reforms too, so occupied the people that they did not see the slow motion underneath of the whole process of government growing remoter and remoter. To live in this process is absolutely not to be able to notice it. Please try to believe me, says this old German from the grave. Please try to believe me, unless one has a much greater degree of political awareness, acuity, than most of us ever had the occasion to develop. Each step was so small, so inconsequential, so well explained, or on occasion regretted. That unless one were detached from the whole process from the beginning, unless one understood what the whole thing was in principle, after all these little measures that no patriotic German could resent, must someday lead to, one no more saw it developing from day to day than a farmer in the field sees the corn growing. And then one day, it is over his head. He goes on to say, Pastor Niemöller spoke for the thousands and thousands of men like me when he spoke too modestly of himself and said that, you know, when the Nazis attacked the communists, he was not a, he was a little uneasy, but after all, he was not a communist. And so he did nothing. And then they attacked the socialists and he was a little uneasier, but still he was not a socialist and he did nothing. And then the schools, the press, the Jews and so on. And he was always uneasier, but still he did nothing. And then they attacked the church and he was a churchman and he did something. But then it was too late. You see, one doesn't see exactly how or where to move. Believe me, this is true. Says this now dead good German from the grave to all of us, in my opinion, today. Believe me, this is true. Each act, each occasion is worse than the last, but only a little worse. You wait for the next and the next. You wait for that one great shocking occasion. Thinking that others, when such a shock comes, will join you in resisting somehow. You don't want to act or even to talk alone. You don't want to go out of your way to make trouble. Why not? Well, you're not in the habit of doing it. It's not just fear, fear of standing alone that restrains you. It's also genuine uncertainty. Uncertainty is a very important factor. And instead of decreasing as time goes on, it grows. Outside in the streets, in the general community, Everyone seems happy. You one hears no protests, certainly sees none. You know, in France or Italy, there'll be slogans against the government painted on walls and fences. In Germany, outside the great cities, perhaps. But in the university community, in your own community, you speak privately to your colleagues, some of whom feel certainly feel as you do. But what do they say? They say, yeah, it's not so bad. You're seeing things. You're an alarmist. And you are, and you are an alarmist. You are saying that this must lead to that. And you can't prove it. These are the beginnings, yes, but 
How do you know for sure when you don't know the end? How do you know or even surmise the end? On the one hand, your enemies, the law, the regime, the party, the Nazis, they intimidate you. On the other hand, your colleagues poo-poo you as pessimistic or even neurotic. But the one great shocking occasion when tens or hundreds of thousands will join you, it never came. That's the difficulty. If the last and worst act of the whole regime had come immediately after the smallest and, and, and first and the smallest thousands, yes, millions would have been sufficiently shocked. If, let us say the gassing of the Jews in 1943 had come immediately after the German firm stickers in the windows of non-Jewish shops in 33. But of course, that isn't the way it happened. In between came all the hundreds of little steps, some of them imperceptible, each of them preparing you not to be shocked by the next. S- step C is not so much worse than step B, and if you didn't make a stand at step B, why should you take a stand at step C and so on to step D? And one day, too late, your principles, if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you. The burden of self-deception has grown too heavy. And some minor incident, in my case, my little boy, hardly more than a baby saying, Jew, swine, collapses it all at once. And you see that everything, everything has changed and changed completely under your nose. And the world you live in, your nation, your people, it's not the world you thought you were in at all. The forums are all there, all untouched, all reassuring, the houses, the shops, the jobs, the mealtimes, the visits, the concerts, the cinema, the holidays. But the spirit which you never noticed because you made the lifelong mistake of identifying it with the forms. That spirit is changed. And now you live in a world of hate and fear. And the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, it seems as if no one has transformed. And now you live in a system which rules without responsibility, even to God. So Milton Mayer says, how is this to be avoided among ordinary men, even among highly educated ordinary men? And his professor friend says, frankly, I do not know. I do not see even now how we could have stopped it. Many times since it happened, I've pondered that pair of great maxims, Principus obsta and finem rispus, resist the beginnings and consider the end. But you must foresee the end in order to resist or even see the beginnings. You have to clearly see the end. And certainly, how is this to be done by ordinary men or even extraordinary men? And here we are. They thought they were free. By Milton Mayer. This extraordinary book. Spend the rest of the hour with award-winning author and Yale University history professor Timothy Snyder, whose new book draws on his decades of experience writing about war and genocide in European history in order to find lessons that can help the United States avoid descending into fascist authoritarianism. It is titled On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. Professor Snyder writes, quote, 
The founding fathers tried to protect us from the threat they knew, the tyranny that overcame ancient democracy. Today, our political order faces new threats, not unlike the totalitarianism of the 20th century. We're no wiser than the Europeans who saw democracy yield to fascism, Nazism or communism. Our one advantage is that we might learn from their experience. That's from Untyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century by Timothy Snyder, Levin Professor of History at Yale University, where he joins us now. Uh, Professor Snyder is also the author of Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, as well as Black Earth, the Holocaust as History and Warning. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Timothy Snyder. Can you talk about, well, just what we quoted you saying there? Do you think that the United States is, um, is headed towards tyranny? So I guess the place to start would be with a quotation. Like the framers of the Constitution— I'm not an American exceptionalist. I, I, I'm a skeptic. My, my, my tendency is to look at examples from other places and to ask what we could learn. The, the point of using the historical examples is to remind ourselves that democracies and republics usually fail. The, 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 the expectation should be failure rather than success. The framers looking at classical examples from Greece, from Greece and Rome gave us the institutions that we have. I think our mistake at present is to imagine that the institutions will automatically continue to protect us. My sense is that we've seen institutions like our own fail. We've 20th century authoritarians have learned that the way to dismantle systems like ours is to go after one institution and then the next, which means that we have to have an active relationship both to history so that we can see how failure arises and learn from people who try to protect institutions, but also an active relationship to our own institutions, that our institutions are only as good as the people who try to serve them. Well, Professor Snyder, in terms of the, the rise of tyranny in the 20th century, clearly the rise of fascism came in the, in the period after World War I. The, uh, the, the masses of people in the world have been exposed to these uh, imperialist wars, and there was tremendous insecurity. Do you, do you see what parallels do you see between that period uh, in the 30s uh, and uh, our situation today? That, that, that's a wonderful question, because it, it helps us see how history can brace us, can give us a kind of grounding. When we think about globalization today, we, we imagine that it's the first globalization, that everything about it is new. And that's just not the case. The globalization we're in now is the second one. The, fir the first globalization was the late 19th century and the early 20th century, when there was a similar expansion of world trade, export-led growth. And interestingly, there was also a similar rhetoric of optimism the idea that trade would lead to enlightenment, would lead to liberalism, um, would lead to peace. That pattern of the late 19th century, uh, we saw it break. Uh, we saw the First World War, as you say, the Great Depression, the Second World War. One way to understand all of that is the long failure of the first globalization. Once we have that in mind, we shouldn't be surprised that our own globalization has contradictions, has opponents, that it generates, uh, that it generates opposition, that it generates ideas of the far right, sometimes the far left, that, that are against it. So history instructs us that there's nothing new or nothing automatic about globalization, but it also instructs us 
that there are people who lived through the end of that first globalization, the kind of people I cite in the book, Hannah Arendt, Victor Klemperer, who observed these effects and then gave us very practical advice about how we can react. So part of our own misunderstanding of globalization, that it's all new, is that history doesn't matter precisely because it's all new. What I'm trying to say in the book is, no, the opposite. We've seen globalization fail before. We've seen fascism rise. We've seen other threats to liberalism, democracy, republics. Um, what we should be doing is learning from the 20th century rather than forgetting it. You wrote a Facebook post in November. Tell us what you wrote about uh, when Donald Trump was elected. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the thing about the, the Facebook post, I, I wrote it right after the election. And it was the first thing that I did. And it, it was it was these 20 lessons. Um, it, it was an attempt to compress everything that I thought I understood about the 20th century into very brief points that would help Americans react. Because I had the, I had this strong feeling, I think it turned out to be correct, that there would be tens of millions of Americans who would be surprised and disoriented and shocked by the election of Mr. Trump and would be seeking some way to, to react. And I did it as quickly as I could because it's very important in these kinds of historical moments to get out front. Um, the tendency to, or the temptation to normalize is, is very strong. The temptation to wait and to say, well, let's see what he does after the inauguration. Let's see who his advisors are. Let's see what the policies are. That temptation generates um, a, a normalization, which is already happening in the United States. And so I was trying to get out front and give people very practical day-to-day -day things that they could do. But what stood behind all of that was a lifetime of working on the worst chapters of European history, um, a, a, a sense of how things can go very wrong. What also stood behind it is my friendships with my teachers and also my students from Eastern Europe, people who have uh, their own biographical connection either to the authoritarianisms of the 20th century or, sadly, the new authoritarianisms of the 21st. It, it's, it's that a little bit which helps me to see that these kinds of things can happen to people like us, but also that there are practical ways that people like us can respond. I wanted to ask you about the first lesson you talk about in your book, uh, especially in light of the realities that in our day and age, clearly authoritarianism has enormous more power of surveillance and social control of populations. You write in your first lesson, do not obey in advance. Most of the power of authoritarianism is freely given. In times like these, individuals think ahead about what a more repressive government will want and then offer themselves without being asked. A citizen who adapts in this way is teaching power what it can do. I think about that in terms of the enormous uh, gravitation of the population towards social media and, and then the ability of states and corporations to actually monitor and control what people say and do and shop and uh, everything they're thinking about. Yeah, so the, I agree with that completely. The, the the historical basis of that first lesson, don't obey in advance, is what historians think we understand about authoritarian regime changes, and in particular, the Nazi regime change of 1933. Historians of Nazi Germany disagree about a lot of things, but one of the few things we agree about is the significance of, of adaptation from below in 1933. When we look at Hitler in retrospect, we sometimes have a tendency to think of him as a kind of supervillain who can do anything. But in fact, the lesson of 1933 is that consent from below matters a lot. Not consent necessarily in the sense of voting or, or marching or anything active, but consent 
in the sense of bystanding, going along, making mental adjustments. So the point of don't obey in advance is not to give your consent in that way, which is very important because if you do just drift at the beginning, then psychologically you're lost. Or to put it a different way, if you don't follow lesson one, don't obey in advance, then you're, you can't follow lessons two to 20 either. Politically, it's also really important because the time which matters the most is the beginning where we are now. Right now, we actually have much more power than we think we do. Our actions are magnified outwards now. When protest becomes illegal or dangerous, this is going to change. But right now, Americans actually have more power than they think they do. And your point actually magnifies all of this because the, the reason, one of the reasons you shouldn't obey in advance is that when you do, you're actually giving power ideas. They don't necessarily have plans. They don't necessarily know what they can do. But when we lean towards what they think they want, and social media is a very good example of this, then we give them ideas. We teach them what they can do. So in our real lives and in social media, it's very important not to obey in advance because they're absolutely right. That information is being collected and collated and and considered. Number two, uh, Timothy Snyder, in your 20 lessons from the 20th century, is defend institutions. Explain. Well, it, it, that's the second most important lesson. It's, 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 number, it's number two for a reason. I have in mind, above all, the, the constitutional institutions, but I also have in mind later on in the book other kinds of institutions like professional uh, or voca- vocational institutions or non-governmental organizations. And, and the reason why institutions are so important is that they're what prevent us from being those atomized individuals who are alone against the overpower, overpowering state. That's a very romantic image, but the, the isolated individual is always going to lose. We need the constitutional institutions as much as we can get them going. It's a real problem now, especially with the legislature. We also need the professions, whether it's law or, or medicine um, or civil servants, to act according to rules that are not the same thing as just following orders. And we need to be able to form ourselves up into non-governmental organizations, because it's, it's not just that we have freedom of association, it's that freedom itself requires association. We need association to have our own ideas confirmed, um, to have our confidence raised, to be in a position to actually act as individuals. Some of that is actually happening, which is a good sign. Number six in your 20 lessons from the 20th century is be wary of paramilitaries. Talk about this in the current context. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a, it's such a wonderful example, Amy, of, of things that we used to know about, for example, national socialism in, in Germany, which have obvious application. We just need to make those applications. So one of the ways that not just Hitler, but other ideological authoritarians break republics is that they break the monopoly of violence. That is, they, you're in a, what we think of as a normal system is when there's law and then there are certain organs whose job it is to enforce the law. And those are state organs. It, what what you do if you're Hitler and other authoritarians have done this too is you have your own militia, the paramilitary, which is an organ of violence which is beyond the state, and you use it to change the atmosphere of politics. You use it to intimidate opponents, um, and then after you win, you keep it going. That's the story of the SA and the S and the SA and the SA in in the SS and the SA in Nazi Germany. So in in the current situation. Or, you know, where our society is flooded with guns like none has ever been before and where there are lots of paramilitaries, it's very important to watch out for the connection of those paramilitaries to politics. 
So, for example, if, if an elected representative in, 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 or an important politician in, let's say, Oregon says, we ought to bring in paramilitaries rather than the police um, when we have our own demonstrations, that's something to really watch out for. Likewise, in the firing of Mr. Comey, of which there were so many desperately bad things that it's easy to overlook some of them, one of the things which was striking in the firing of Mr. Comey by Mr. Trump is that he sent Keith Schiller to do it, right? So he, you had a confrontation of the man who was the head of Mr. Trump's security detail, right, his own paramilitary, going to fire the head of a law enforcement agency. Um, that's a sign of the way Mr. Trump thinks, and it's, it's obviously not a very good sign. I wanted to ask you, uh, there was uh, another one of your lessons, uh, lesson 12, make eye contact and small talk. Uh, that would seem like uh, not a strong way to battle authoritarianism. But your thoughts about that? I, I love that question because it's, it's, it's really important for us to see that we have power in all kinds of ways that we don't have. So some of the lessons look easy, but are in fact hard. Like number one, don't obey in advance. That's actually really hard. Um, or, or number 19, be a patriot. Also r- really hard. Some of the ones actually are not that difficult, but they magnify outwards. Like number four, which is take care of the face of the world, which basically means just paint over swastikas when you see them. That's not that hard when you get to do it, if you can get yourself to do it, but it does make a difference. So small talk is a little bit like that. Small talk and eye contact are important for, for a number of reasons. One is that, I mean, going back to this, the new story above all this, you have to be, you don't know who feels left out who feels threatened. But if you are more pleasant or more affirming to everybody in your daily life, you are going to make a difference. And the reason why this is so close to my heart is that in all the memoirs, uh, Jewish memoirs, say, of Nazi Germany, but also memoirs of the terror and Stalinist Soviet Union, there's that moment when people start crossing the street rather than talking to you. And that's the moment we have to avoid, both for the sake of the political atmosphere, but also for the sake of what kind of people we want to be. But the small talk is also really important because one of the deep problems where we are in our own sort of postmodern authoritarianism is that we spend too much time on the internet. We spend too much time in front of screens. We forget to, we forget how to talk to one another. And that human contact can be, can be very important. I mean, one thing, you know, personally, which suggests to me this is right, is the difference between last fall and this spring. Like last fall, I talked to a lot of people in other parts of the country, in the Midwest, for example, about what I thought was going on. And I got basically zero resonance. But the fact that I talked to people as opposed to just posting something online, which can be important too, means that now sometimes people come back to me and say, oh, yes. So you never convince anybody with small talk, but you do sometimes demonstrate that you're a human being and that you're not the enemy and that maybe at some future point there could be some better conversation. We've just heard clips today, starting with Tom Hartman discussing a Nicholas Kristof article warning about Trump's threat to democracy. Democracy Now! spoke with a political opponent of the newly elected authoritarian president in Brazil about the so-called Trump of the tropics. Analysis took the broad view of our changing times with what seems to be the death of the old world order while the new is yet to be born. Democracy Now! interviewed Professor Jason Stanley about the feelings of victimhood and loss combined with patriarchy that always accompanies fascism. 
Tom Hartman then read an excerpt from They Thought They Were Free. And finally, we just heard an interview on Democracy Now! with historian Timothy Snyder about his 20 lessons from the 20th century to help us avoid sliding into tyranny. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips explaining the fascist tendencies of the GOP in terms of their willingness to use whatever tactics they can get away with to grab power and institute one-party rule whenever possible, and more thoughts on the psychology of fascism that makes people believe that the pursuit of equality is a myth, and therefore any benefits gained by oppressed groups are felt uh, not only as a loss to dominant groups, but as, as the first step toward the formally oppressed coming to dominate the formally dominant, hence the need to fight back against any perceived threat of equality. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level, though if that's too steep for you, consider supporting our work and getting the show ad-free for only 2 bucks a month. But of course, if you can give more, we will happily take any amount of support you want to throw our way. And remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You just follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend, which helps guide the course of the show. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. Now, I always agonize about what to put in and what to cut out of the show, but on topics like today's that I, I think are so overarchingly important and in, for which there is so much great content, it becomes even harder, and sometimes I just give up and let the show run long like it did today. So hopefully you found everything to be uh, worth your while. We'll be getting back to regularly scheduled listener voicemails and commentaries next week. Uh, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. I just have one quick voicemail to share today, but it's not new. I first played this one a little more than a year ago, and I've thought about this guy from time to time since then, uh, wondering when he'll flip. Hi, my name is Sam, and I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I am a Trump voter, and I love the show. Uh, as a Trump voter, I do find myself feeling misunderstood and misrepresented quite often. Uh, one thing I really want you and your team to know is that if Trump becomes tyrannical in any way or um, moves to form a dictatorship or commits any human rights atrocities, both myself and, and the many Trump voter friends that I have would be right there with you leading the charge against him. And uh, we didn't vote for him because we like him as a person. Um, he's narcissistic uh, and uh, along with a lot of other, you know, things we really don't like. Uh, we voted for him because we, we value individual liberty and the values of the Constitution. And he was our best bet to get closer to that. And, you know, my Trump voting friends and I want to end cronyism. We want to end the war on drugs. We want to legalize narcotics. You know, we want prison reform, police reform. We want to fix the immigration system. We want to be able to buy damn alcohol on Sunday. Uh, we want to stop overthrowing governments and get out of Afghanistan. And, um, and we want many other things that I think would surprise a lot of people on the left. Uh, anyway, love the show. Keep up the good work. So, Sam, if you're out there, get in touch. Let me know what you think about the rise of authoritarianism now, having heard this episode and not to mention living uh, life over the last uh, year or so. And then let me know what you plan to do about it. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook 
Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.